Wings for Breakfast is brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deals on last-minute tickets. Ticket prices tend to drop right before the game starts, and because GameTime tracks prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers, they're able to show you the best last-minute deals with prices up to 60% off. Red Wings are playing Prashant's local Carolina Hurricanes this weekend in Detroit, and you can bet that if he's coming in from out of town, he's using GameTime to get in the door at the lowest price possible in the best seats possible. So check out Game Time. The Game Time app is simple, quick, and easy to navigate, and you can download the Game Time app in the Google Play or the App Store and score last-minute deals on tickets up to 60% off. breakfast our twice weekly red wings podcast here on the athletic i am max boltman with me as always is prashant Iyer, and the red wings uh are coming back from their three game west coast road trip with four points which is not totally uh i mean that's a good good result but not totally the way you would have expected them to get it all three games go to overtime they lose the last two including one last night against san jose that they had a lot of chances to win yeah, the the game against the Sharks, I thought, was one of the Wings' better efforts on the season. They were able to hold the Sharks under 20 shots for the game, which I thought was really impressive. Um, you know, the Sharks, like we had talked about on the last podcast, were starting to heat up, starting to find their game a little bit more. You know, they have so many offensive weapons, and a team like Detroit that's really struggled defensively, you know, that was kind of a recipe for a potential disaster, but I thought that was actually a really solid you know, defensive performance. And if you, if you actually look at some of the, uh, shot chart logs, which basically log like when different events are happening, the wings were kind of able to get the sharks to flatline basically after the final, after the first 30 minutes or really over the final 30 minutes, the wings were able to really tighten that up, uh, which allowed them to kind of get the game tying goal with four and a half minutes to go and, uh, get them at least that, that point. And now, Hey, Max, they're on a five game point streak. Yeah, kind of weird how it happens, but this I think is something that everyone needs to get used to kind of understanding about this team is that the results are going to fluctuate wildly. It is going to be a roller coaster in that sense, but I think when when you when you step back and you look at the overall product, that's what you kind of understand um what this team is on the aggregate. I think you're going to have streaks where they you know, get the point total of a borderline playoff team, and then you're going to have streaks where they get like one point in ten games. And I think um, maybe not quite so extreme all the way, but I think uh, those things add up to the overall product of the season. And the Red Wings are still in last place. Last time I checked. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like we talked about. There, there's going to be ups and downs. They weren't as bad as they looked, but at the end of the day, they're still a bottom five team. Uh, yeah, they're largely in, in in last place because of that horrendous twelve game stretch that they had. Um, and, you know, so it'll take a little bit of time to dig out of that. Uh, they are still effectively tied with Ottawa. I think actually Minnesota is in dead last, and then the Wings are tied with Ottawa and, and the Kings um, for second to last. So you know, basically bottom five at this point. And they will get Ottawa this week at home, so that they, you know they'll have a chance to score another couple of points or at least some goals. Ottawa 
actually beat them pretty handily when they when Detroit went there. But I think the Red Wings are in a very different place now. They seem to be a lot more confident, and really notably, they are handling deficits substantially better than they had over that really bad ten game stretch. Yeah, you know the game against the Kings, they uh, they're able to come back after giving up that first goal. Um, on a, they gave up that first goal to Andre Kopitar pretty early in the first period, and they're able to come back and withstand that. And then against the Sharks, they get down 2 nothing and are able to fight back from that deficit. So, Max, I entirely maintain the statement I said on the last podcast. They are doing this just to spite you. Well, they can do it for whatever reason they want. You know, I think, you know, the, the fact that they're doing it is a major... Uh, step forward for them. And I think you saw it last night against San Jose. Andreas Athanasiu gets a late goal to tie things up, send it to overtime, had two really good chances to win it. One of them was a, a, on a penalty that I think probably should have been called a penalty shot based on the angle that uh, Athanasiu had and the angle that I think it was Thornton maybe that was challenging him and ended up tripping him. And then another one on kind of a, you know, poke and hope, but not in the, the original meaning of it, but he you know, reaches his stick out and pokes one off the crossbar. Um, we've seen Don Larkin and Andreas Athanasiu connect on that before. Uh, it almost worked again to give him a win, but I, I think overall it, it's pretty hard to be critical of the Red Wings' effort in San Jose. L.A. may be a little bit different story. Um, I didn't think they were like all that great in L.A., but, but I thought they were really good in San Jose. Yeah, I think From what I saw, I didn't see the whole game. Yeah, I, I think it's important um, because... The last two games, I think you can make a statement that the Wings' top line wasn't their best line. And I don't think they were the best line in either of those games against the Kings or against the Sharks. I think the uh, interesting thing is that you get the, you got the results from the top line in that Kings game because you get two goals from Tyler Bertuzzi, both off of great plays by Mantha, one on a great stick check where he's then able to just blow by um, the Kings defenseman to, to set up that two on one with Bertuzzi. And then the second one, Mantha gets in on that defenseman so fast after Doughty makes a back pass and he's able to, you know, strip the puck and set up Bertuzzi. So they got the results there. But if you look at the stats for them globally, they were far off their pace where they usually are at against the Kings. And you had the same thing happen against the Sharks. And actually you had that Athanasiu Fabry Filpola line. That line was actually Detroit's. Um, you know, best line, I think, in both of those games. And so the interesting thing that uh, we've been talking about basically the whole season is what was Detroit going to do when the top line had an off night or wasn't as resoundly dominant as they had been in the early part of the season. And I think last night was a great example of what the addition of Fabry has meant to the Wings' top six, where they are able to trot out another competent line behind that first line that can also provide some offense um, if the first line just isn't clicking like it was in those last two games. Yeah, I you know I think we both knew that Andreas Athanasiu was going to start getting pucks to go in for him. Like I don't think it's any big surprise that that he's turning it on here now. And but I do think the addition of Fabry has been a big boost, and I think Philpola in particular has turned it on. And I think it, it gives the Red Wings a whole other dimension. I mean that line I think had like seventy some percent of the. Um, you know, shot attempts, and I think close to that for scoring chances for the Red Wings last night. I mean, that's a, that's a substantial step forward for the Red Wings, who really needed any other line to step forward for them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, like we've said, it's been something they've been needing for a really, really long time, and um, they finally got it, got that last night, not only with Athanasiu getting a couple of goals, but then you had Taro Hirose finally get his first goal of the season after he drew back into the lineup. Um, and he scores off a brilliant pass from uh, Perlini, 
who gets a point. I think that was his first point with the wings, if I'm yes. remembering correctly. Yep. Um, great patience with the puck as he's wheeling up the boards. He's able to to find Hiroshi wide open in front of the net, and he's able to get you – know, you're not going to get many goals much easier than that. So I think it was great supplemental scoring uh, for the wings in a, on a night when the top line just – didn't look uh, didn't look like themselves, and and good for Tar Hirose for getting one. And when he gets back into the lineup, he had been scratched. Was it four or five straight games? So I think you know you throw him back into that line. Now you know I think Franz Nielsen still probably uh, <laughs> as much as anyone needs something to go his way here. But uh, Perlini is, is is the kind of weapon that you put with Hirose. You know, and that's, I think, it gives you a little bit of offensive upside on that third line. That's something the Red Wings can use, and I think a good sign to see them have a little bit of success last night. It was weird. I mean, the, the Red Wings' top line, normally a shot share force. Last night, I think it was only like 33% for them. I don't know, you know, some of that I'm sure is, is the opposition that they were getting. I know, like, Larkin, for example, was matched up a lot with, like, Eric Carlson, like 12 minutes against Carlson and Velasic. That's not an easy line to go up against. Um, and the Sharks may be one of those deeper teams that I think give a different look than what the Red Wings' top line is used to seeing. I mean, it's there's not just one line that they're going to go head-to-head against, and if they beat that line, then it's it's all the way domination. I mean, they've got a hurdle line. They've got a, a Joe Thornton you know, line, Logan Couture line. I think you know it's, it's all... Um, it's a little bit different look, but I think the fact that the Ribbons line top line wasn't there all the way is, uh, you know, that's its own its own separate issue there. Yeah, and you know, I think the the difference between the performance of the top six with Fabry, kind of, you know, looking at it prior to that acquisition and then post the acquisition is, uh, you know, something that's really highlighted from these two games. And I, you brought an interesting graph to my attention. Um, from Jordan Dix, who basically what he did is he went through uh, the Evolving Hockey website and picked up on their goals above replacement model. So for those of you familiar with baseball, um, you know, similar to war or wins above replacement, there's a similar metric that's been created in hockey called goals above replacement. And so what Jordan did is he basically separated out the top six forwards for each team and the bottom six forwards for each team and looked at where each of those, uh, you know, teams stack up. If you look at Detroit's goals above replacement contrib- contribution from their top six, they're a top, they've got a top 10 top six group by that metric. So the teams that are ahead of them, obviously Boston, Edmonton, Colorado, Tampa, Montreal, Washington, St. Louis, Philly, and Vegas, and Detroit sitting there right at 10th. And that's with Bertuzzi, Larkin, Mantha, Fabry, Athanasio, Phil Plug. There's nothing different about that. Um, and so those guys, that's a solid top six. But where Detroit's really been undone has been in that support from the bottom six. And so by the bottom six uh, metrics, Detroit actually has the worst bottom six from goals above replacement. And that's with Jordan using a bottom six of Perlini, Nielsen, Hirose, and then Abdulkader, Glendening, and Helm. And so even though the Fabry trade, you know, like we talked about in the last two games, has been able to provide some additional scoring and support uh, when the top line doesn't have their game entirely there, it's still a massive problem that the bottom six isn't able to provide really anything positive at all or even keep the game at neutral. I think it's also worth noting that when you break up kind of where that top six share is coming from for the Red Wings... I don't think they'd be that much farther off if it was really just top three against everyone else's top six. Like, if you look at the, they've got kind of the bars that divide it up. I would encourage everyone to go 
Um, look at this chart. I retweeted it earlier today, uh, Sunday night, that is. Um, and a huge share of those contributions are coming from Larkin and Mantha specifically. And then I don't know who that, who the third share versus the fourth share is, but in some order, Athanasiu Bertuzzi. Um, I, I mean, I think the Red Wings top, top three is doing a ton of the work there still. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. And I think the interesting thing is you can make a similar case about the bottom six, although the fascinating thing is even if you wanted to interchange some of those pieces, it wouldn't make a whole lot of difference. Yeah. Um, so by goals above replacement, Franz Nielsen has been the worst player in the NHL. He's actually at minus 5.5 goals above replacement. Next closest player is at minus 4.9. But, you know, when I was mentioning that bottom six, that one player I didn't mention was Adam Ernie. Um, but if you were to put Adam Ernie in, he's actually the sixth worst in the NHL at minus 3.8. Um, and so there are a lot of the pieces that have basically changed up or found their way into the wings lineup in that bottom six have still all been net negative contributors. And so that's, that's another area of focus for the wings is how do they start turning out or inter- or basically changing out some of those guys in the bottom six and elevating that skill level. That's where you've seen a lot of these moves made by the wings, um, by Eisman to try and get a Perlini, to try and get a um, Fabry to see if they can start pushing people into the right role so maybe they can get some, um, you know, better success from that opportunity. What um, what components is Ernie getting knocked at? Because, you know, I, I know he hasn't been super impactful, but he doesn't seem – doesn't seem bad to me watching him. Yeah, it's his offense. Okay. So even strength offense is makes up. He's basically minus three point eight overall, with minus two point five coming from his even strength offense. Yep. Um, and he's basically even at defense, a little bit negative on the power play, and a little bit negative at drawing penalties. But his primary net negative part has been on offense, whereas Nielsen's actually been on offense, defense. And shorthanded situations, he's that's kind of almost equal, equally bad across the board there. Yeah, because Ernie's defense to me, I, I know it comes up as a negative and even strength D. I wonder if that's something that maybe could still stabilize a bit. Because to my naked eye, I think he's been a at least a solid defensive player for them. Uh, but nonetheless, the results are the results, and I think that the broad point stands that. Um, you know, the Red Wings are still a, an incredibly top-heavy team. What I think I got out of seeing it presented that way and, and visually is that the Red Wings are, are really starting to get some of those players in place that you need to, to to turn that corner. I think we talked about it a little bit um, just in our text conversation. I don't know if we even talked much about it on the show. I know you tweeted about it. The Red Wings starting to assemble a couple of those really potential top-line pieces that are still in their early primes. Um, that, to me, is a big takeaway of this graph. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the tweets you're alluding to, a couple of days back, I actually put out a couple of graphs from the same Evolving Hockey website uh, using their regularized, adjusted, plus, minus. And so essentially think of it as trying to isolate each individual's uh, kind of impact on specific components of that can be measured. And so we're looking at things like what is a player's impact on their expected goals for, um, plus minus their goals for plus minus and then their Corsi, which is again the shots that are taken. What's that plus minus look like? You know, and one of the graphs I put out was on Anthony Mantha, who I think you could make a legitimate argument that he's been one of the top three or top five wingers in the NHL this season. And Dylan Larkin, I think you can make a legitimate argument, has been one of the top five to top ten centers in the NHL this season. And so with Having those two guys in place, one of the things Max and I talked about at the beginning of the year was 
how many pieces away is this team from being a Stanley Cup contender or even a playoff contender? Um, I think you have two pieces there with the way these guys have developed, um, Larkin and Mantha being those two guys, that you you have a couple of those tough-to-get pieces, and now you're looking for, I need to re- really round out that top six. Um, and then another piece is you've really got to round out that bottom six. But the two most difficult pieces, you could argue, being kind of top-line forwards, the Wings have a couple there that look like they may be able to be pieces of the future. Yep, absolutely. And I think, you know, Mantha's emergence is a huge story for this season that we will continue to get into, you know, I'm sure over the course of the, over the course of this podcast's lifespan and through the season. But, um, moving along a little bit, let's get back to the, to the games from this week a little bit. A lot of moving pieces around the Red Wings right now. Uh, Luke Lindenning got, came back, but Mike Green was out. Philip Ronick missed some time. Patrick Ronick, or uh, Patrick Nemeth has missed some time. The Rings defense court, they feel that against LA and San Jose, really just had Dennis Chalowski, Mike Green for one of them, Madison Bowie, and then a bunch of pieces who have been up and down for really this year. Alex Biega was in there, Jonathan Erickson, Joe Hicketts, Dylan McElrath. Really a huge kind of hodgepodge of, um, of different faces from different, you know, points of the season all in at once. And, you know, it, it was an interesting to see them, you know, fare as well as they did, I thought, against San Jose. Um, LA obviously a little bit tougher sledding. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the defense the Wings trotted out against the Sharks, you could make an argument that was the worst defensive group they trotted out of this decade. Uh, I was shocked. And then again, it was no fault of them because, you know, like you said, Green, his wife's having his, uh, having a baby, and so Green's going to head out that way. Nemeth, as you mentioned, with that, uh, I guess some sort of leg infection after blocking a shot, um, and a couple of other uh, guys out. I mean, their D unit, I think, had Chalowski and Biega as the top pairing, uh, if I remember correctly. And so it was, it was a very interesting defensive group, and somehow they're still able to hold the Sharks under 20 shots. So I thought that was a heroic effort from those guys, but... You know, it's it's been very interesting. I think it's been a whirlwind uh, probably 24 hours for Giovanni Smith too, right, where he's out in San Jose, they send him down, and then I think, what was it, maybe 12 hours later they're calling him back up. I don't even know if he got off the plane in Detroit before he was able to turn back around to San Jose. And so I don't even know if he boarded the plane. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's like I don't know if that was just for semantics purposes, like they needed to do it to make the roster look right. But, you know, it's just there's been a whirlwind of moves happening, and I think – you know, this has been a problem for the Wings for the last few years where they've had a number of injuries and you've had to see a number of these AHL guys, um, you know, come up. And so I think you're getting to see a fair bit of that now. And honestly, these efforts you're getting from the Wings are, are impressive nonetheless. Yeah, I think this is something that goes back to, you know, when that losing streak was really in, in the full throws and people were, were really concerned about the locker room. This is part of what I think has been a pretty nice response from the Red Wings to that sort of criticism. They were adamant that, you know, it's about the guys in this room and they all have each other's backs. And, um, you know, they've kind of shown that, I think, over the last five or six games here. Yeah, and it's a stark contrast to when what was going on in that 11 or 12 game uh, stretch for the Wings where they just couldn't put anything together and everyone's saying they've stopped playing for the coach, they've stopped playing for themselves, there, there's just no effort. I think you're, you've seen the pendulum swing the other way to basically tell you, I don't think it was ever really about the effort, and I think it was just a lot of bad breaks and bounces that just aren't going to sustain themselves over the uh, the course of a season. 
in addition to the obvious like talent overmatch, yes. right? I don't, yeah, you know, like I think it wasn't just luck. That's for sure. You know, they it was, they were getting um, you know win column results in line with what we thought. It was just the the score lines. I think the product of, of a whole lot of factors. One of which I, it'd be impossible to say you know was not some bounces. I know people didn't love hearing that because I think it maybe read as sort of excuse making. But every single piece of data you or I could find suggested that the Red Wings were, in addition to being not that very not not, not a very good team, were getting some pretty crazy luck. Yeah, I mean that's that's exactly it. Like their results were just magnified, you know, a thousand times by getting some of those weird bounces or just poor goaltending like we talked about. Um, you know, that led to that. And actually, you know, one of the things the Wings did to try and fix that was they gave Jonathan Bernier four straight starts. Um and he actually was good. Yeah, he was really good. And you know, so we talked about on the last episode was he starting to wrestle away the job from Howard. You know, I think he could make the the case that he he certainly has in a game against the Kings where um, you know, the wings weren't very good at five on five. They had an expected goals for percentage of 47% and they only controlled 39% of the overall shots. Bernie kind of kept them in, uh, a fair bit of that game to be able to get them to overtime and, and give them the chance. And, you know, honestly, if the wings are able to hold off the Kings on that last minute and a half, uh, they might sneak out of LA with a two, you know, a two one win. Um, but unfortunately, you know, that re- rebound comes off Bernier's pad and then Erickson's not able to tie up, uh, the stick of the, the Kings player in front and they're able to get that game tying goal. But he's been really good. And it, actually, Jimmy Howard got his first start in five, um, against the Sharks. And again, I, I didn't think he looked all that great. And that, that had been a big issue for the Wings and getting those really bad results was their goaltending, I think, was just way, well below where they were expecting it to be. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I think, you know, Howard obviously came up with a couple of huge saves. Uh, yeah, right at the end Sharks of the game. game. Yep. Yeah. Um, but I, I didn't see a whole lot, you know, earlier in that game, so I couldn't really speak to, to his overall performance. I know certainly by save percentage, um, another one that wouldn't have, have graded out super well. Yeah, the second goal in particular was another one of those just long half slappers slash wrist shots that he's given up, you know, a handful of times this year. It's an unscreened wrist shot that he just he whiffs on it. It hits the bottom of his glove and goes into the net. And I want to say I can count maybe three or four of those. That those are just goals that he hasn't given up really over the last ten years. Um, he's been so sound, so positionally great that I don't know if there's something you know going on with him outside of that, or if this is just signs of age catching up. But you know some of the saves that we've come to expect him to make. Uh, he's just not making anymore, and some of those are particularly routine shots that I think have resulted and been kind of deflating a little bit to the team. Going to be really interesting to see how they handle the workload this week. So they have, obviously, they have a back-to-back Saturday, Sunday. You, you have to assume that they'll split those starts between one, you know, one guy getting one. But the two starts earlier in the week, Ottawa and at Columbus. There's a day off in the middle. There's no reason that they couldn't go with the same guy twice if they wanted to. But we'll see if they alternate or if they, you know, give two to Bernier or two to Howard or how they want to do that. So four games this week, will it be two to two or three to one? I think that's something I'm watching fairly closely here. Uh, let's also talk about though, you know, the Athanasiu kind of breakout a little bit. He's, he's got five goals now on the season, six assists. He's starting to get back toward that pace that everyone expected on him. We talked about a couple of other opportunities that he had uh, that he nearly converted on. Uh, where are you at on Athanasiu right now? What are you seeing from him? And, uh, you know, we, we have talked about the importance of that line as a whole getting to where it is. Yeah. I think Fabry has been a huge addition for him because, 
you know, as we've talked about with the way the Wings construct their lines and they haven't really been willing to to break up that top line for extended periods of time. They did break them up for a couple of games to see if they could get Athanasiu going, but largely Athanasiu hasn't really received the same level of linemate support that, you know, Larkin, Mantha, and Bertuzzi get by playing with each other. And so Fabry, I think, has been a huge addition as it gives him another guy that's got that high offensive IQ, has the legs to keep up with him, um, and is able to get him the puck in situations. Like the Sharks goal is a great one where, you know, Fabry's got the puck at the, on the, along the boards at center ice. He knows Athanasiu is flying and is able to put it on him, even though it wasn't a great pass. Athanasiu is able to kind of kick it up to his stick and then go back, uh, forehand backhand for the goal there. Um, you know, there's other ones that we've seen where Fabry's able to make a great pass. Um, over to Athanasiu to really get him the puck. And so I think that's been the biggest key to get to getting him going offensively. I think the important thing we still can't forget is that, um, you know, I've highlighted this in a number of uh, episodes, is that even though Athanasiu scores and he's doing a lot of those things, he's never been a great defensive player and tends to give back up, uh, tends to give up more than he's actually putting on the board for you. So I'll be curious to see as the season progresses if the addition of Fabry is able to keep Athanasiu more of a net positive versus a net negative. I think the last two games that second line was able to at least play even in terms of the number of shots against and the quality of shots against. And so if they're able to sustain that, I'll be curious to see if Athanasiu is able to um, kind of write his defensive performance. But for me, this is kind of what we expected. He was always going to write the ship offensively. It was just, could he ever round out his game to be more of a total package player versus a kind of dynamite offensive player, but a sieve on defense? And I think that, you know, I'm not on the California trip, obviously, uh, but I I saw on the broadcast last night Jeff Blaschel praising Athanasiu for having kind of a more uh, complete game, more, you know, better effort overall, and especially in the competitiveness department. So that would point to be a sign there. And if nothing else, I think certainly anyone who has an interest in, you know, gauging the market for Athanasiu has to be very excited about uh, sort of the, the, the scoring breakout in the recent games. Yeah, I mean, it's what you would want to see if you were going to be on the team that wanted to trade him. Like we talked about a couple of episodes ago, you know, almost 80% of people wanted to deal Athanasiu Granted, he was in the midst of his extended uh, scoring uh, kind of dry spell, but even still, uh, it'll be interesting to see. At the end of the day, this is what you're looking for. This is that secondary offense, and if you're ultimately looking to trade him at the end of the day, this is also a good thing. Yep, absolutely. Uh, Should we get to the listener questions? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Good ones. Good ones this week, guys. Good job. Uh, This one is from at what a nerd. Let's assume the Red Wings don't have a top two suggest or selection this year. Who do you feel the team is most interested in with Lafreniere and Byfield off the table? Do they take the chance on Askarov? I'll preface this by saying, since it's mid-November, like any conjecture we had on who they're most interested in, number one, we don't know. Number two, it would be liable to change several times over the next seven months. So we'll just kind of skip over it to kind of who, who the next guys that are. Um, relevant there and, and kind of who fits the profile for them. Uh, do you do you want to weigh in on that at all? Yeah. Um, you know, this is just kind of my opinion in terms of who the, I think the guys are that are legitimate players at, in the three through five range. So a lot of the 2020 lists are still very preliminary. Um, you'll see guys like Lucas Raymond, Alexander Holtz, um, who are playing in the SHL. You have Anton Lundell in Liga. 
Um, you've got Tim Stutzel. You've got uh, who's playing out in the DEL on Mannheim where uh, Moritz Sider played last year. Um, back in North America, you've got a handful of good players. You've got Cole Perfetti. You've got, um, you know, Marco Rossi, a number of good guys available. For me, the two guys that have really stood out um, are Anton Lindell and uh, Tim Stutzel. So Stutzel in particular, playing over in Germany, um, you know, as as a lot of Wings fans are familiar, after drafting more Sider, there's a lot of talk about this is a men's league, you know, rookies kind of don't play a whole lot of minutes. It's very tough for them to, to get engaged. Stutzel right now is having the best 18-year-old season of any player ever in the DEL. And so he's looked absolutely outstanding. He's been, you know, he's really in, on pace to, to threaten a lot of the DEL uh, rookie records. So I think he's a legitimate player at three, and he look for him to be a riser up the draft boards um, if, he, if the Wings don't have a top two pick. And then the other guy is uh, Anton Lindell, who's had a great start to the season in Liga. His stats are actually pretty comparable to what Capocacco was doing last year. So he's another guy that I think um, if Raymond and, and uh, Holtz don't start to pick it up in the SHL, those are two other guys you might see rise up the boards. And importantly with Lindell, he is a center, and he is someone who I have heard, I mean, I haven't seen a whole lot of him myself other than at the uh, World Junior Showcase this summer. Uh, but, you know, I, my understanding is also some some good defense there for him. Yeah, I mean, he's he's got an all-around game. I really think there's a lot of top-tier players this year. Like I said, a guy who's projected to maybe go fourth or fifth in Anton Lindell is scoring at the same pace that Capo Caco was last year, and, and Caco was a legitimate threat to be the first overall pick um, last season. So that should give you some sort of indication on, on the depth that's really there in that top ten um, and we haven't even talked about the North American guys like Perfetti, Marco Rossi, and a couple of others. So there's really a lot of players there. To get to the second piece of the question about Askarov, uh, my personal opinion is I wouldn't touch a goalie uh, if that was my only first-round pick just because there's, one, the goalie development timelines for a even a first-round goaltender tend to be much longer uh, and much more nebulous. There is very little guarantee in terms of how a goaltender is going to pan out or develop. Um, so I'm very wary of taking goaltenders in the first round, particularly when I only have one pick. You saw Florida do it last year with Spencer Knight, but they had a second pick. Um, I don't know that a lot of teams are going to be willing to do it. Where I would be more willing to do it is in the second round, like what Carolina did last year, taking uh, Kachatov, who is arguably right behind Spencer Knight, probably the second best goal in the draft, but they get him middle of the second round where it's a little bit, you're spending a little bit less draft capital at that point. Yep. I will add on Lundell. He is one of the older players in the class with an early October birthday. So that's something that probably should be factored in uh, with him as well. I think Stussel is, is one that I would be watching pretty closely. Obviously you got the two Swedes, Lucas Raymond, Alexander Holtz. By the way, guys, the U18 World Championships this year are going to be in Metro Detroit and Plymouth. So I would highly recommend anybody who wants to see some of these guys for themselves uh, start making arrangements to come to that because I expect a lot of these guys to be at that. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, all right, moving on to a question from PJ. Is it still possible to find players like Datsuk outside the first round? Uh, you've got some thoughts here. I will respond first to this one by saying I just don't think there really are players like Datsuk. But I think uh, <laughs> if by that you mean, you know, we, we talked about this on a, on a – well, I can't really talk about that yet. Uh, 
there's not many players like Dadzuk, period. One of the best players, you know, in the NHL over my lifetime. But if by players like Datsuk you mean high-impact players who somehow managed to slide later into the draft, I think the answer is still yes. Yeah, I think this one's a little bit tricky because, you know, I'm going to set us, I'm going to interpret the question the same way you did, where no, I don't think there's anybody like Datsuk. Um, so I'm going to set that aside. But if I answer this in terms of are there still high-impact players outside of the first round, uh, the answer is still yes. I mean, there's a handful of examples over the last few years, including one in Detroit. Andreas Athanasiu in 2012 was a fourth-round pick, 110th overall. And so you're looking at getting a 30-goal scorer at that point. Um, a couple of other guys that really stand out over the past decade, Johnny Gaudreau was a fourth-round pick in 2011. Jacob Slavin was a fourth-round pick in 2012. Uh, Victor Arvidsson, fourth-round pick in 2014. Devin Tays, excellent defenseman for the New York Islanders. He was a fourth-round pick also in 2014. So I think there's still the potential to land high-impact players. I don't think you're landing Hall of Famers, uh, if you will, um, on a routine basis, given with the increase in scouting, um, the number of scouts different teams have, the access to video footage, Leagues like when we're talking about scouting a guy like Datsuk, you know the, the the most people are familiar with the Datsuk scouting story where basically the Wings were able to see him one time. Um, they weren't even going to see Datsuk; they actually were going to see a different player. But Datsuk happened to catch the eye of Hawk and Anderson, who was over there, um, and everyone's like, "Oh my God, this kid's incredible!" Like just straight up, he was all over the puck. No one else could see him. And the, the fascinating thing was there was actually another game where the Wings were supposed to go back and see him, and they actually saw that there was a scout from another team uh, supposed to be on the same flight. And thankfully, for whatever stroke of luck, their flight is canceled due to weather. And so none of them ever go back and see him. They've got Datsuk stashed away, and they're pretty sure that da- they're the only ones who ever saw Datsuk play in that draft season. That's just not the case now with the access to video um, and all the footage that's streamed. And so it does make it a lot tougher to really land these guys. And that's where you've seen a lot of teams kind of move towards uh, draft analytics or finding different ways to incorporate people uh, into pulling that information for them. Yeah, and just to kind of, you know, take this one step further, like you talk about players like Datsuk. The only player that I can really think of that I've heard compared to Datsuk in the modern game was last year. Nick Katsunika did a really good story about this for NHL.com. Jeff Blaschel actually said that Pedersen reminds him, Elias Pedersen reminds him of Datsuk, and, you know, Pedersen made it all the way down to pick number five. So I think if you are ever going to see kind of a Datsuk-like player, um, don't count on getting him past number five. Exactly. Yep. All right, moving on to the next question. Uh, is there any good reason Iserman hasn't bit on undervalued players placed on waivers? Uh, Josh Hosang and Brandon Peary strike me as no-brainers. I'll start here by saying undervalued is kind of a loaded word. I, I don't know if it's necessarily fair to say that uh, those guys are undervalued considering they, they cleared, right? And um, Josh Hosang you know, and, and Brandon Peary obviously have, have a little bit of track record in the NHL. Uh, but I think value is re- always relative, and I think it, it can be a little bit uh, dangerous to assume that um, teams don't know what they're doing when they pass on those guys. But uh, taking that a little more at, at face value, like I think there's a, a good question in here. Like Iserman has made a few moves in, in the trade market. Why has he not done more uh, on the waiver market? Is it is it the players? Is it something else? Yeah, 
you know, both Piri and Hosang, you know, on the surface, when you look at their stats, you go, wow, these guys have had some decent scoring numbers at the NHL level for a rebuilding team like Detroit. Why not take a waiver on uh, one or two of these guys and, and just see what they can bring to the lineup? It's something that you and I have alluded to as being an excellent strategy, something that the Carolina Hurricanes did a lot of when they were in their rebuilding process. Um, but the the difference here, I think, is one, just from a contract standpoint, the Wings are sitting at 48 of 50 contracts. So taking a guy off of waivers and then keeping them on the NHL roster, I think that does push them up against the limit. So that's one thing they have to factor in um, is that contract limit, and they are relatively close to it, which certainly limits their flexibility to do other things. And then the second thing is, you know, when these guys, if you see these guys continually hit waivers, you know, to Max's point, even though you, you want to avoid appealing to authority and just say if those 31 GMs all think the same, then clearly this guy can't be valuable. But there may be other layers to the the, the piece here that we aren't aware of. Uh, you know, with both Hosang and Peary, I'm not sure that you could guarantee them top six spots with the way the top six guys are playing. And so then again, if you're going to pick those guys up, are you able to put them in situations that are advantageous for them? Uh, where they're going to be able to utilize those skills. I don't know that Detroit has those spots right now. Um, so even though I think it is something to consider, I think there's a couple of external team factors, namely the number of contracts and then the roster spots available that kind of prevent them from being able to do that. I think you nailed it. And Craig Custins for The Athletic did an outstanding job explaining kind of this phenomenon earlier this year in October. If you want to look it up, the headline is, What's the deal with NHL waivers and players consistently getting through? Uh, and like you're saying, the, the contract limits, the salary cap, and teams liking their own players more are all reasons listed in that story. I think the Red Wings would be a prime example of that. When you look at where they could realistically put Josh Hosang, for example, really the only guy you're probably bumping out for him is Taro Hirose, and you know that's fine if that's what you want to do. But you are also adding a contract to the mix there. You are limiting... The opportunities you can give your own guys, whether that's Hiroshi, whether that is Adam Ernie, whether that's a call-up later in the season, um, if you're committing to that. And, and by going near that contract limit, I don't know if people appreciate enough, you know, the the, the implications there. People have talked about, like, the Pooley-RV trade, for example. Um, if you add one more contract, then it means if you want to make a trade for someone like Pooley-RV, it's the only thing you can do for the, really the rest of the year without sending guys out. If you want to make uh, both of those moves, then there's nothing else you can do. And if someone really interesting comes on the market, if let's say that the Fabry trade, for example, if Fabry comes on the market later in the year and you've already, um, you know, filled up your contract spot, I guess it's one for one with De La Rose, so that doesn't necessarily matter in that context. But I, I just think people probably should appreciate the flexibility, the, the the benefit of the flexibility to having those contract spots, not unlike having salary cap room as an asset. If you fill up on contracts because you're given all these reclamation projects, I think that's a good thing to, to give all those reclamation pro, pro, uh, projects, but acquiring on waivers is the number one way to make sure that you up your number of contracts taken on and then you limit yourself for when really good opportunities come available. Um, that, to me, I think is the best reason as any that if the Red Wings are going to add anyone off waivers, it's got to be like a crazy good opportunity. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, you know, just for reference, uh, there are no teams that have 50 of 50 contracts. There's only two that have 49 of 50. Um, you've got a handful at 48 over 50, but most have 47 or less. Uh, just to give some sort of indication to how much that flexibility means to teams. Um, you know, so to Max's point, 
even if the Wings wanted to pick up one of those guys, it really does limit uh, your ability to to maneuver things here um, for the rest of the season. Yep, and I think you know the Red Wings. We, we talk about their lineup, right? Like if you're going to put Hosang in a third line role, is he really giving you that much more than Hiroshi to to give up that flexibility? My sense would be probably not. Yeah, and I would agree. All right, um, there was a couple more that that came in late that I did kind of want to ask. I think a couple, you know, one one lighter one and one more serious one. Uh, John Evans says, what brings you the most joy about your job or jobs? Do you want to go first on that? You can take it from, from any angle you want. Yeah, I'll take it from a hockey angle. And so the, probably the thing I enjoy the most is when, um, I'm able to either provide assistance or, or help, um, people understand some of the more complex analytical concepts, particularly when people show like a vested interest in like, I want to understand why this is the case or I want to know why this is the case. And if, if I have the ability to help and I'm able to help them and then they start to actually understand what they're talking about and, and understand, uh, kind of that, that angle, uh, I think nothing makes me happier than being able to do that. And so by all means, if anyone is listening to the podcast or is reading, uh, articles and sees terms or stats thrown around that you're just not familiar with, um, do, don't hesitate to ask because that's honestly what I enjoy the most. Yeah, and I, I just like interacting with, with all of you guys at any level too. I think, you know, the, the watching hockey part of the job is obviously very fun on a, on a brass tacks basis, but I think the, the part that really makes it, um, enjoyable is, is getting to hear from, from you guys and whether it's questions, whether it's, you know, feedback. Um, I get a ton of DMs every day, so I know you guys aren't shy about letting me know what you think uh, one way or the other. But uh, that's probably my favorite part as well. It's it's really fun to, you know, I think the Red Wings fan base is super passionate, and I have said this other places, but really impressed with how uh, locked in they have remained through a pretty brutal rebuild at times. Um, moving on, though, let's see. Anthemius, I think I'm pronouncing that right, says, if Mike Babcock is let go in Toronto, do you think Eisenman tries to bring him back to Detroit? And how loud would the screams of angry Wings fans be if that happened? I would think not, would be my gut instinct. Yeah, I would think uh, Babcock is, is not coming back. Um, you know, he, he left on his own accord to go to Toronto. I think retroactively, when we're looking back at his time in Detroit, I think Probably the number one question that gets asked is, why didn't the Wings win more? Um, you know, they had arguably the most dominant team, you know, several of his years there. Um, you look at 05-06 when they had 58 wins and they lose in the first round to Edmonton. Uh, 06-07, they lose in conference finals to the Ducks. Uh, 07-08, they win, but then 08-09... They add Marion Hosa and don't win the Stanley Cup. Um, 9 10 you know, they get past the, the Coyotes um, and then aren't able to, to really do much against the Sharks. And the same thing in 10-11. And then 11-12 comes and you lose, in Nash- lose to Nashville. Um, you have to wonder why that team didn't win more. I don't know that bringing him back is, is the right fit. I think he was able to get the most out of a team that didn't have a lot of talent. So towards the end of his tenure I think that's when he really overachieved but when he had those highly talented teams I don't know that he actually uh, elevated them to that level that you would want that team to be at yep I think that's a fair point and uh, certainly something that maybe seems like it has 
implications on where Toronto is at right now. I think uh, a whole lot of questions around that franchise, but that is for another podcast. Uh, I think that's all I got question-wise. Anything you want to talk about with the week to come before we let everybody go? No, I think, uh, you know, it's another exciting week ahead, as Max, you've kind of outlined already. I think we'll, there's a number of interesting pieces here to know from an injury standpoint. Looks like as we're wrapping up here, Joe Hicketts has been sent back down, meaning uh, Mike Green's probably ready to go again. Uh, and so there'll be a, a number of inter- interesting things to, to keep an eye on. The thing I'm watching is uh, what happens with the goaltending. So like I mentioned earlier, Bernier got four consecutive starts. The Wings go back to Howard. Didn't have the strongest of games. How do the Wings uh, approach this week in terms of who gets the starts? Yep, and I am watching a few winnable games in the, the first half of the week. Uh, I mean, not, not first half, first three of the four games. Ottawa, Columbus, New Jersey. I see no no reason the Red Wings can't win two of those three games if they bring their full game. So that is something I am watching throughout the week, as well as can the Red Wings' top line kind of regain a little bit of that dominance. I, I expect the answer is a pretty firm yes. That is all for us. We will make sure we talk to you guys in the middle of the week. Please support us by subscribing to our podcast, rating and reviewing it on iTunes or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. And if you're interested in uh, taking that support up a notch, you can subscribe to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash wingsforbreakfast. We do bonus subscriber-only episodes every week there, and we would love to have you join us on board. Uh, there's a lot more than just podcasts. Great stories every day. I can't even keep up with all of them. There's so much good stuff coming out of the Detroit market every single day. So thanks so much for listening, and we will talk to you again in the middle of the week. Thank you.